0: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. Ooh, that's a bit of a change. Normally we're Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I'm not going to get all litigious on your ass. But that is like saying decanant. I know, sorry, contractually it should be your name first. <laughs> Not alphabetically, just, you know, contractually. But I was in, um, I think I was in a bit of a whizzy or a tizzy because I came straight in cold. And normally we have about half an yes. hour of waffle, preamble. Preamble waffle, preambulatory waffle. I know, I thought it might be for the first time in, you know, four years, it might be nice to spare... Joel is our producer this week. Sometimes it's Charlie. And normally they have to sit through half an hour of off-mic waffle about love life updates, problems with the boiler, issues with the council. (laughs) So it'll be nice to spare them that this week. (laughs) It's not even waffle, it's awful. off-mic waffle. Very good, very good. Listen, I don't mind it being uh, Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton as long as you're prepared to pay the fine to Ofcom. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll pay that later. I've got so many things I want to talk to you about this week, mainly snippets I want to gauge your reaction to. Like, did you see that Melanie Sykes is back visiting her gondolier? No, and this brings me so much joy. <laughs> Tell me everything. Also, how has she managed that freedom of travel? Because that, <laughs> that is not key work of business, I don't think. I mean, I desperately want to know the update on what happened with her gondolier, but... I don't know how she was able to get that through the net. I'm regularly perplexed by what people are seemingly managing to do in in lockdown. So I can't answer that question. And um, I can't actually tell you anything more about the gondolier. I just saw it when I was cruising for stories. And I thought, (laughs) I must let Dolly know. I know that she was very invested, quite cynically. Invested in this first trip to the gondolier. So Melanie Sykes back visiting her gondolier in Venice. And other sensational news is that Emily in Paris has been commissioned for a second series. Yes. I mean, that's not really a surprise, is it? Look, it must have had so many viewers. I suppose it's not a surprise because it had so many viewers, but it just, just had so much hate. I almost feel like they had to duck when they announced that. Like, I bet a lot of people listening to this or who read that announcement will have groaned whilst also being full in the knowledge that they will watch it. Mm. Mm. I think the New Yorker described it so well when they referred to it as part of a new canon of television called ambient TV. Oh, I like that. What is ambient TV? Is that the kind of TV that you have on in the background is kind of a warm wall of colors and noise while basically you sit on Instagram? I think that's exactly it. I think it's like the televisual equivalent of a fake roaring fire. That's exactly what it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Netflix followed up their announcement about series two with what I think is quite a passive aggressive tweet. Friendly reminder, Emily in Paris is supposed to be pronounced with a French accent. So Emily and Paris rhyme. Firstly, Can you ever use the term friendly reminder without it sounding like a fuck you? (laughs) Friendly reminder is a horrible phrase. I'm just trying to think what yours would be, Pandora. Pandora in Andorra. Yeah, that one's quite obvious, isn't it? Should it really be Emily in Paris? Isn't that a slippery slope? If it's Paris, does that mean as non-French people, we should also be talking about the Tour Eiffel? (laughs) Yeah, I think that was bold to think that anyone would read that word and immediately go, oh, Paris. And if we open up that, should, because I think this is quite a controversial one, should you pronounce it chorizo or chorizo? Look, it goes without saying we should be saying parry, we should be saying chorizo. We should not be anglicising these beautiful words and we should be respecting the language uh, in its original intended form. But I don't know if I would snog a man who said I will have the chorizo. On a first date, if I'm being totally honest, would you? I don't think it's necessarily about respecting the language because it's literally just about how words are in different languages. So it's more the mingling of the languages I find a bit weird. So if you're speaking English and then you say like, the tour Eiffel or Paris or I will have a croissant, like it's it's more just like do one or the other? Yes. My other Emily in Paris tidbit is that Rishi Sunak apparently watches it to chill out. So good. (laughs) How on earth did anyone find that out? But also why? Why would he watch that to chill out? Oh, well, just another mystery around Emily in Paris. I think it might be time for my David Cameron story on the flight. I think I've already told this on the high-low, haven't I? About when it was right before the referendum and a friend of a friend was on a flight and david cameron and his advisors were on this flight. allegedly 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 and uh all the advisors throughout the flight were just like running from aisle to aisle sharing information being kind of very very uh high energy and the entire time david cameron had his earphones allegedly plugged in as he watched jumanji the original jumanji on an ipad allegedly (laughs) and before we move on from emily and parry I have just let my eyes cast over the other rhyme zone results and we actually could have Dolly in Crawley, which I think is near Gatwick and it would have to be Dolly. Have... You'd have to be called Dolly. We've also got the suggestion Dolly in Internationale, which, <laughs> which I think covers a broad name? church. Your name officially doesn't rhyme with a place. What does Dolly this in mean? Mexica- Dolly in Mexicali. Dolly in Bali? That's that's best, probably. God, I bet Dolly would like to be in Bali right now. Instead of location, we've also got here Dolly Melancholy. I think that could be a documentary, couldn't it? Dolly oh, and no. her border collie. <laughs> Dolly is a border collie. She is a bit of a border collie. Dolly, do you know what? This could go on for a long time. And actually, yeah, it's it could, reminding yeah. me too much of my years that I spent developing reality TV shows. So maybe we should move on. Let's move on to Harry Styles. Have you seen him on American Vogue looking beautiful? He's the first man to ever be on Mm -hmm. American Vogue. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought that imagery was stunning. I thought I loved how he was styled. I love that, once again, he was subverting gender norms. I thought it was iconic, beautiful. Hot as fuck, I loved it. He is so good looking, it's so obvious to say that, but he is so good looking. The news of him covering American Vogue though, went much larger than I think it would have done because Candace Owen, who for anyone unfamiliar is a conservative commentator known for her criticism of Black Lives Matter, she calls it Blexit. She retweeted this post by American Vogue with the comment, bring back manly men. which has obviously spawned a... Oh, that's fucking awful. Spawned a massive conversation. Oh, that's really pissed me off. Sorry, that's an obvious reaction to have, but I just... The first thing I thought when I saw that picture of him in that incredible couture gown in that field, I just was like, how powerful for young men and women to see an image like that, to see someone who is beloved and confident and, you know, truly who they are and truly showing the essence of who they are without paying attention to these ancient ideas of, of how gender should be displayed. So I felt real excitement when I saw those images. There's a comment from Alok Vade menon a gender non-conforming writer and performance artist who says, do I think this is a sign of progress of society's evolution away from binary gender? Yes. Do I think that white men should be upheld as the face of gender neutral fashion? No. So I guess it will be interesting to see what US, Vogue does next. They've always yeah. had women on their covers. And obviously this is a departure. But I, I do understand that for... Some people it doesn't feel particularly radical. And then for people yeah. like Candice Stone, far too radical. Such mm. is life. Mm. Speaking of, have you seen uh, Maggie Hamblings back in the news this week? I have. Oh, poor old Maggie Hamblings. She's had a bit of battering in the papers this week. Well, she is, at least on the outside, giving no F's. Yeah, she 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 doesn't need my sympathy or concern at all. <laughs> Maggie Hambling has created a feminist tribute to Mary Wollstonecraft, which was unveiled on Newington Green in North London last week. And the funding for the statue came from the Mary on the Green campaign, which has been fundraising for 10 years. And the statue is a very small silver figure who is naked. And it's not meant to be Mary It's meant to be... Femininity or womanhood or something. It's meant to be abstract, isn't it? It's meant to be... Okay, so according to one of the judges who decided who was going to create it, it was meant to be a statement artwork that would inspire and excite. I don't love the statue. I don't really understand why she has to be naked. And I think it could have been a bit bigger. It's very diminutive. But I do think if you're going to commission Maggie Hambling then you have to understand that what you're gonna get might not be something sweet and safe. Yes, I agree with that. I like that it's abstract. I read an interview with the campaigners saying that they didn't want to go down the quite old fashioned route of Mary Anna Bonnet. The idea of deifying individuals with direct sort of portraiture of them, Mm. which I understand that this is about something much bigger than just Mary Wollstonecraft. It's about a movement. So that's why they went for something more abstract. I obviously love Maggie Hambling. I don't know if just the photos that I've seen have not been that good. I'm going to go down to Newington Green this afternoon, just take a walk down there because I think it might look better in the flesh because in every image that I've seen, to be completely honest, I obviously think Maggie Hambling is a genius and a very talented sculptor and artist, but it does look like a GCSE... Barbie doll spray spray painted silver to say something about feminism. Do you know what I mean? A tiny bit. Well, Rachel Cook said it's worse in the flesh than in pictures. Oh really. Um, so but I but I would love to hear what you think. Maggie responded to critique by saying, I need complete freedom. And it's not the first time she has received criticism for her work, or even that there's been controversy around her work, her sculpture in homage to Benjamin Britten in Albrook, which I actually really love that she created in 2003 was very divisive and locals are only really making their peace with it now. She also said, I love this line, as Oscar Wilde said, when critics are divided, the artist is at one with himself. Oh, I love that quote. I love that. And also that is the job of Maggie Hambling as an artist I think which is not to to be yeah and which which is not to be you know needlessly provocative but to be completely committed to her own vision that's what that's what her job as an artist is so she succeeded I suppose yes yes I see and I agree to provoke I, I mean to kind of encourage us to think about things rather than to be needlessly provocative yeah and actually something that I saw the campaigner had said which I agree with is how many people are saying that name now who may not have known who Mary Wollstonecraft was also there are a few things that I feel like we do need to nod to which is that firstly it wasn't funded by taxpayers money exactly and The journalist B. Rowlett, the author of the travel book about Mary Wollstonecraft, In Search of Mary, has said that she's surprised by the volume and fury of the critique, given that the work does not stand in a prominent London location and that it was a voluntary project. Would you like to hear my favourite local news story of the week? Seven women have been fined for breaching coronavirus restrictions after being caught travelling in a stretch limousine together. The women were stopped by West Midlands police On Saturday night, after travelling from Bilston to Sedgley, near Dudley, they were issued fines of £200 each for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. After officers stopped the limousine in Bilston, the women who were in their 20s, 30s and 40s claimed they lived in the same household. However, after they got out of the vehicle, police said they learned this was not the case. The question is, where was the stretch limo going? This is my big question. Everything's closed. (laughs) So were they just getting a limo on a Saturday night to go to each other's houses? Or maybe they were just getting a limo. That, that was it. That was the plan on Saturday. Just to, just to tour around in it. The greater Birmingham area. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Pretty maverick move. <laughs> I have some shocking news for you. Lipstick sales <laughs> are down by almost 50%. Is that the least surprising statistic of 2020? Well, 50% is enormous and people are still doing all those bloody zooms. But I suppose it's not very good with the face mask, is it? I've given up on lipstick if I'm going out wearing a face mask. Just makes it filthy, doesn't it? I had to do a telly Makes thing. It filthy, yeah. I had to do a telly thing last week and I completely, you know, I put on full, troweled it on, full face makeup and then I put my mask over the top and then when I took it off to record, I could just see everyone's faces looking at this. It was grim. <laughs> just a really filthy interior of my mask. Lipstick on the face mask does serve as a reminder that we should be washing those face masks quite a lot. I think basically every day you should be sticking them in the sink, shouldn't you? Yes, because you might not do a full load, mightn't you? So just give it a scrub with some soap. Mm, Exactly. Or wear a dark one so you can't see the stains. (laughs) (laughs) Have you found one that you like yet? I haven't found one that I like. I'm not, I really enjoy people who get into mask fashion. I haven't joined them. I wear anything I can find. So that might be just a plain black one Got some from sainsbury's which are quite nice i don't like the ones that i see lots of people wearing that look like a sort of pair of y-fronts that have got stuck on your face in a wind on a windy day the ones that are, do you know which ones i mean there are some that look a bit like um the kind of pig noses that men have that i've seen men in, in like SM scenes on telly where there's like a on bottle the, on a the bottle telly, top eh? <laughs> yeah where there's like a bottle top on the nose <laughs> Uh yes, yes, yes. They they are quite S&M-y, yeah. yeah. And maybe they give you better coverage. I think we should move on to Princess Diana, Panda, because I don't know about you, but I've had a Princess Diana-packed week. So, first of all, there was the ITV documentary about the Martin Bashir Panorama interview. For anyone who didn't catch us mentioning it last week, it is a two-part programme called The Diana Interview: Revenge of a Princess and it investigates the events leading up to an infamous interview, maybe one of the most famous celebrity interviews of all time, in which Princess Diana opened up about the disintegration of her marriage to Prince Charles, about Camilla Parker Bowles, her struggles with mental health and eating disorders, and the royal family. The allegation being investigated is whether the documentary maker Martin Bashir lied to Princess Diana, to get her to do the interview, including showing her forged bank statements, which made her think people close to her were leaking stories about her. Charles Spencer, Diana's brother, supports these allegations. The documentary includes a first-time interview with Matt Wiesler, a former graphic designer at the BBC, who Bashir asked to forge the documents. Wiesler says unwittingly. Matt Wiesler was then sacked from the BBC and had to leave the industry, whereas Martin Bashir was just given a ticking off. There is now a call for the BBC to face a police probe, which Matt Vislav fully supports. Although I read in the Times this weekend that apparently a note from Princess Diana has been recovered that exonerates Martin Bashir, in which she she says that she was not deceived. He himself cannot comment as he's very unwell due to COVID. What did you think, Panda? Yeah, the Martin Bashir not being able to comment thing is a bit weird because there were pictures of him picking up a takeaway when that statement was made but it that is fascinating the Matt Fiesler stuff is the is the kind of only new thing that came out of it but what really took me away when I watched this documentary is how young Princess Diana was when she gave that panorama interview Mm -hmm. she was Mm. 33 she's my age I know and she was just 36 when she died she just seemed so adult she'd gone through so much i mean i know everyone seems so adult when you are a child but i just i cannot get over that she was 33 when she did that interview it's it's weird isn't it i haven't been so immersed in the diana story as i have been in the last couple of the last couple of weeks since she died and i was what 7 when she died on my birthday actually and was that, yeah. And it's weird now reading about her life and reading about who she was and reading about the extraordinary events of her life and the pressures that she was put under and the things that she had to do as a 30 something woman. Because as you said, when I was younger, she just was sort of sophisticated adult lady princess in my head. But now to be able to read about her history and read about her story and relate to her as a woman in my thirties is so, it, it just makes me reframe everything so differently. Knowing how young she was. I mean, they really ham up the same lines again and again from that panorama interview. Some of the bits have been so overplayed. If I hear there are three of us in the marriage one more time, and there are actually other bits from that interview or from other interviews she did at that time, which really take your breath away. I think what really carries the two part documentary are those revelations from Matt Wiesler. I mean that's the really sensational bit, isn't it? S- sensational in that how much would have been different if she'd never done that Martin Bashir documentary, if she'd never done that Panorama interview. And they say in the in the doc, don't they, that she had been offered so many big interview platforms, Oprah, Barbara Walters, why was it that she chose Martin Bashir, specifically. Because those falsified documents, I guess, came along at the right time. Yeah. It was enough to encourage Earl Spencer to encourage his sister to do it. And he's obviously said, you know, he wouldn't have. Mm. I think the documentary was well made. I mean, malpractice aside, it was just fascinating to hear about the preparation leading up to the filming and what that night of filming was like. I think they got some really good talking heads for it. Andrew Morton, her biographer, who we mentioned last week, for example, was an interviewee, Rosie Boycott. Obviously, Paul Burrell made an appearance, sticking his oar in. I did a slight groan over the talking heads. Am I really meant to take anything Paul Burrell says? Seriously. Because I just, I just really doubt his integrity on it. Because he has made a career for twenty-five years out of his late employer's private life. So the more controversy that he can weigh in on, the more money he earns. I just feel like he's got too much skin in the game to be. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really. I sort of glazed over a bit when Paul Burrell was saying his bits, but I really enjoyed Rosie Boycott's. Mm, me too. Uh, comments and I also I do think Andrew Morton offered quite a clear insight into her frame of mind during that time yes I mean a lot of people have dismissed his biography as kind of overtly flattering haven't they and sort of quite a rewriting of her life but there's no doubt that of the people that really knew her he Mm. was definitely one of them I was also comforted to know that she, according to those who knew her, she didn't regret the interview. In fact, apparently she was very glad that it happened. I suppose the issue there, though, is that she was glad she had done it in the context of thinking that sources who hadn't been selling stories on her had been selling stories. So would she have been glad if she hadn't been provided with that falsified information? That's what kind of nags at me. Yeah. I found an article in the papers this weekend by the royal correspondent Jenny Bond, which I have to say, I the bit she revealed in there from an interview that she did with Diana five months before the Panorama interview, I found um, much more interesting than the revelations in the ITV documentary. Because this interview, like I think a lot, or this conversation, like a lot of conversations Diana had, unlike the Panorama interview, was you know a private conversation not one to be printed so Jenny Bond was the BBC Royal Correspondent at the time but there was stuff that was said on record and then there was a lot of stuff that was said off record and there were two quotes from Diana that I wanted to read here as I found it very telling about the time as well that she married Prince Charles in I was thrust into this public role of being Princess of Wales without being in any way ready Charles would tell me to go over and start chatting to the crowds but how could I All my upbringing had been not to speak unless I was spoken to. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? It's Mm. very different to now how anyone coming into that role. Well, I'll say that. Kate Middleton was definitely encouraged to be quite demure, wasn't she? And then here's another one. Jenny Bond said, in a remark that struck me as bizarrely perceptive, Diana said, I was not unbalanced. The trouble was I was too sane for my environment. Interesting. She's incredibly smart. I've just been listening to so many interviews with her over the last couple of weeks, and she's a very perceptive person. I think what she went through with the press is, well, I don't like drawing comparisons between her and Meghan Markle, you know, different women, different time, but, and I'm sure this is what's probably very hard for William and Harry about this documentary coming out, is that we have seen in, in her own words, what Meghan Markle feels like negative press attention has done to her. And it was like that times a million for Diana, wasn't it? You know, she was being chased. And I think that is enough to make any woman feel so unsafe and so mm. destabilized because Tina Brown writes quite a lot in the Diana Chronicles, which is a, is a book I really enjoyed um, about how she courted the press and how kind of maybe like Meghan Markle, it's been suggested she wanted, you know, to always have the press on her own terms and that's not always how it worked. But how, how would she not, if she felt like there was nowhere she could go, there was no one she could trust. How do you say "stay sane as she says and that insane? I take umbrage with the word courted because I think if it is so a part of your daily life, the press, to try and find a way in which it can't ruin your life is mm. not courting or being it's navigating. It's management. It's yeah. survival. Yeah, that's not courting, and that's also not a verb that you would ever hear. Sorry to bang that drum, but that is not a verb that you would ever hear someone describe a a man being harassed. You would never hear a man being described in those kind of like cunning terms. I don't think. It just makes me think, and I often think about this, what it would have been like for her now. I mean, I know that's a fruitless ambition to imagine that. She wouldn't be the same 33-year-old in 2020 as she would have been in the mid-90s, so I know that's fruitless, but I do often wonder what, what the Princess Diana effect would have been as well, the people's princess. You know, are we more cynical? Are we less cynical? Where are we at with celebrity? And part of me feels quite agonised that all of this is being aired while Harry and Meghan seem to be having an absolute crisis in terms of their roles and the press. I know they're public figures. I know it's par for course, but it feels particularly poignant, I think, because of what they've spoken about in the last year. To find out about these falsified documents, to find out that Diana was lied to in that way, that she was betrayed in that way. On You're Wrong About, the Princess Diana miniseries, the hosts speculate on how Princess Diana may have been a royal who used social media. And they say how sad they are that that the world will never get to see her Instagram stories. I think she is is loved more for not having been born in the age of social media. Yes. Because social media cannot but humanize everyone and she was kind of magical to a lot of people wasn't she i mean i've Mm. never ever seen and i doubt i will ever see again that kind and again it's magnified isn't it because we were kids but that kind of public mourning on the princess diana theme i have been completely and utterly mesmerized mesmerized by the series of the crown What do you think, Pounder? I have finally lost my crown virginity. Oh, brilliant. I'm glad that you've lost it to this series because last series was a little bit shaky, but I think series four is an absolute triumph. I don't know why it took me so long. I think it's because I felt like um, I'd missed too much. So I wasn't actually meaning to be the Dolly Alderton and being like popular culture, not for me. I just thought I can't possibly catch up but then I thought I cannot not watch this there had been so much kind of hype hadn't there for um Diana and Margaret Thatcher and I don't feel like I have to have seen I am going to go back and watch the others god knows when yeah I was going to say I don't I don't think you need to have watched previous series to to enjoy this series this series is basically about 80s Britain really and it's just a turbulent, fascinating time in history. Gillian Anderson, I think, is brilliant as Thatcher. The hair is a little too big, I think, but that's not her fault. And um, some people have said that the voice is a little bit too labored and a bit too uh, caricatured, but I think she's really captured the essence of her and I think she's really humanized her. Some people won't like that, though, will they? The kind of humanizing of Thatcher, I think that's that's always something that's quite controversial. Definitely, and I don't, when I say humanise, that doesn't, it's not so much that it's like an empathetic drawing of her, but it's more just seeing who that person was behind the blue suits and and the big hair. But as I said, some people have had an issue with the voice. My friend Lauren sent me this voice note of a quite eerily accurate impression of Gillian Anderson's Thatcher. I'm afraid I find Gillian Anderson's Margaret Thatcher voice Rather erotic, and that bothers me, Your Majesty. But I think she's got it dead on. What did you think of Emma Corrin as Diana? Because I think she is really, really good. And from what I can see, people seem to largely think this is the best stab at Princess Diana there has ever been. Because there's been a lot of attempts, like Naomi Watts, um, that largely have been panned, I think. But she seems to have... Captured it, hasn't she? Full warning now, Hilo listeners, there are going to be spoilers in the next few minutes because I want to talk about Emma Corrin as Diana. So if you don't want spoilers about The Crown, this series, skip ahead, my loves. Um, Emma Corrin, I thought she was, yeah, incredible. I think what she really honed in on of Diana, which is the thing that, has, that is so heartbreaking, is her naivety in how young she was when, how you know, she was 19 when mm. she met Charles. Charles was my age <laughs> and she was 19. And the way that they show her youthfulness is so authentic. There are lots of scenes with her newly engaged, just wandering around a wing of the palace, just on her own, living on her own in this new world without her family, roller skating, listening to Juran Juran, being a 19 year old newly in love and having no idea of what she's just signed up for. And I think the portrayal of her eating disorder, I I mean, no one will enjoy watching that. I personally found that very traumatic to watch it. I found it very, very upsetting. But it is essential in the Diana's story and for understanding who that young woman was and how she coped or didn't cope with this new life that was, forced on her in this very complicated relationship and very complicated family that she married into and had no way of, you know, leaving freely. It is devastating, really heartbreaking. I cried, I haven't watched a Diana episode of The Crown so far in which I haven't cried. And I've spoken to lots of people who said the same. It's really respectfully and sensitively done. I mean, I do, think it's not an entirely guilt-free watch, watching this series of The Crown, because I do keep thinking about the people who were connected to Diana who was still alive, Prince Charles and Camilla and her sons. And apparently, I read in the paper this week that people close to Charles have described this as trolling on a hollywood budget it's difficult that isn't it and that he has said this is going to be his last series hasn't he because it's getting too present no there are two more there are two more i think oh really yeah i just was reading the casting actually it's going to be amelda staunton as the queen leslie manville as um princess margaret and rumored dominic west as prince charles and i know and I think they could go right up to uh, the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Potentially, the people have speculated that that's where the story could take us. So to the to kind of turn of the century. He he said he won't do Meghan Markle though, right? Yes. No, I don't think I don't think he will. Yes. Right. So it, so it won't go up to present day. Right. Okay. I I agree that she is enormously moving as Princess Diana. I think. Um, I don't think it always is important for a character to look identical to who they're playing, but I think it is disarming how much like the footage and clips of princess diana she seems i think they've done the most incredible job with her wardrobe you know there was only like one of those sheep jumpers in the world and it's in the vna so they had another handmade. like if you match the outfits like for like they are incredible her teenage bedroom is just amazing so much chintz and i there's another clip that is often wheeled out along with the, there were three of us in the marriage, which is where, you know, she's so giggly and red cheeked and the and they're being asked if they're very much in love. And she goes, yes, of course. And he goes, well, whatever in love means. And, you know, when you watch, I, I kept thinking of that when I was watching The Crown, you know, this incredibly young, flushed, giggly girl who was convinced age 19 she was in love with this husband who in his 30s, you know, isn't really sure he even knows what that is, or perhaps is so cynical to it. You know, ultimately, like, he hasn't been able to marry the woman he's in love with. There's there's, there's a tragedy to that. It is a tragedy. It's a tragedy for all of them. Emerald Finale as Camilla Parker Bowles is yes. so good. Yes. So good. I really do think all of them in this series have just particularly that that set of the the young royals in that cast in this series, it's just so uh, accurate, so eerily done, so beyond visuals, so beyond whether the aesthetic matches in terms of the mood of those characters and how they hold themselves and the voices. It must have been so studied because I think every single performance is pitch perfect. I just can't help but think now that we're talking now about what you said about Prince Charles being trolled on a Hollywood level. I, oh, you're right, it's... I did, I I felt uneasy watching it, but I feel more uneasy now that you've let me know that there's two more series coming. I know. Anyway, it's an interesting one that. My favorite episode so far, I've still got three episodes to watch tonight, but my favorite episode so far that you're going to love Pandora is about a story that I was completely unaware of where a man called Michael Fagan Broke into Buckingham Palace. Do you know this story? Yes, but remind me of it so he was a London man. He actually lived on the road next to mine. He was a working-class man. He was his children had been taken away from him He lost his job or he was struggling to find work. He was a decorator basically he was an example of one of many 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 working class british people who were completely fucked by thatcher and they tell the story of thatcher's britain the sort of the disintegration of society the disenchantment of the of the this mass this mass of our country through that time and they put it alongside this hyper privilege of the royals the way they tell the story on the crown which is obviously fictionalized history so i don't know how many of these details are entirely correct um you can read about michael fagan online now there are lots of articles online about the real story of him but in the crown they show him literally getting off a bus outside buckingham palace climbing over the fence scaling the palace uh, on a drain pipe. And the first time he broke in, he just had a wander around and uh, drank a bottle of wine. <laughs> and then he left. And they saw him on CCTV. And then he managed to break in again, but this time he broke into the Queen's bedroom. And in the crown, they use it as an opportunity for the Queen to kind of engage very briefly with understanding what was happening outside the walls of her palace, what Britain was like for the majority of people living in a country who felt like they were being dismissed, like they weren't being heard, like uh, they weren't understood. And it's just a perfectly choreographed episode of weaving in all these lives and weaving in all these big societal issues during that time, as well as telling the story of the queen and her relationship to her subjects. So yeah, you'll love it, Panda. It's like the perfect episode of The Crown. I'm so excited to watch more of them. Yeah, I've dipped into, I think I'm halfway through the fourth one, so I can't wait to watch more of them. As a Crown expert, do you think this is the best series so far? Um, I can't, I sorry. Uh... You're, you're, you're smiling like um, there's someone sitting next to you ready to pour <laughs> jelly on your head if you say the wrong answer. Well, one of my very good friends was in series one and two. So I <laughs> yes. loved okay. series one and two were obviously my favourites because Vanessa Kirby played Princess Margaret and she was fucking brilliant. Um, but after those two, then yes, this is my favourite. This is my joint right, so favourite. All- It's my joint favourite with Vanessa Kirby's performance. Yeah, exactly. Very diplomatic from me. I hope you're ready for an extremely jolly conversation because the Christmas ads have dropped. I know it's only mid-November. I know we really cannot be sure what Christmas will hold for everyone but I really recommend watching these actually back to back. If you put in Christmas ads, there are so many publications where you can watch them like all one after the other, watching them back to back for an absolute mood booster. Here is a brief, but not exhaustive, because we'd be here for hours, of what has dropped so far. Coca-Cola has a father who goes on an epic trek to reach his daughter for Christmas, directed by the Academy Award winner Taika Waititi. John Lewis has nine acts of kindness through various animated scenes. Oh, I love that one. I loved it particularly because it says so much about this year and how much we've come to depend on each other. I think it's so clever because they stitch all the different styles of these different animated artists together in a really fluent way really artistic way I thought that must mean that it would cost so much more but apparently it's their cheapest ever ad most likely because this is the first ever year that they haven't turned a profit poor old John Lewis Mm. but I have to say I like it so much more than ones with bells and whistles on I love the kind of clever sweet artistry of it yes I agree it's a real visual treat to watch it McDonald's is another animated one. There's no surprise as to why uh, lots of people chose animation this year. With a mother trying to get her preteen son to discover his Christmas magic. Oh, it's got such a moving soundtrack to this. What did you think of this one? Are they Do they get to you too like they do me, these Christmas ads? They do to a certain extent and then it slightly tips over into mawkishness that that pulls me out. So, McDonald's erred uh, right on the right side of sentimentality for me. Disney made me feel a, a tiny bit queasy. Oh, but that little grandmother, she's so sweet. Love her little gran. Love <laughs> the little gran with her with big her eyes. Little, and her little, um, like kind of cross-hatched mouth. So Disney, also animated, explored a relationship between a grandmother and her granddaughter through a Mickey Mouse toy. What is it about animated characters that makes them so ploddy and adorable? They've got (laughs) these giant (laughs) glossy eyes. Oh my God. I did love the Gran. I don't want everyone to think I have a heart of stone. I did love the Gran, but... I that story with the Mickey Mouse toy, I don't know, I'm not sure. Where's it's Disney, isn't it? very.co.uk, I love this explores all the things that can go wrong during christmas but in a very charming and funny way letty butler as the mum is just great golden turkey and gifts from grandchildren make the most magical moments oh what the lord of rubbish you know what christmas moment i like every bloom in one of them one, two, i love watching the neighbors oh here we go zapping the national Aww. grid Aww. I love getting a 12-foot tree in a 10-foot room. I love it. I love surprises. And I love dressing the house up. Why don't you slap one? Because Alfie's is much better. Yeah. yeah! I like this one. I thought it was charming. And I also think it's it's a good Christmas ad for 2020 because it says a lot about expectation versus reality and just embracing the imperfection and the unpredictability of things yeah and she's a she's so charming that mum Morrison's has a nurse returning home to her family after a night shift m has various celebrities reading out the sexy food commentary that they do with a contribution given to charity of their choosing on their behalf and they're changing them up every week to Christmas I think there's eight celebrities in the pipeline so far we've had Olivia Coleman and Naomi Harris cool what a year Let's try to make Christmas a little brighter, shall we? Oh, what a great place to start. Not riveting, but lovely that all their fees are going to charity. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Nice that their fee's going to charity. A bit boring. Probably quite easy to do. Probably quite expensive to do. Maybe not. Actually, I'm being unfair. I'm being unfair saying it's boring because I actually, I do love those those close-ups of... You know, bubbles in carver and ribbons of slow motion salmon falling onto a plate. So, yeah, good job. MS, sturdy, reliable, aren't they? Sturdy and reliable, that's true. Um, less sturdy was Walker's, who had Lad Baby singing. I must admit, I don't get what's one. Yes, Lad Baby and Carol Smiley. Who is Lad Baby? Yeah, Carol Smiley, Lad Baby, and Alid Jones. What a lineup. Yes, it's, I wouldn't say it's the most cohesive narrative, perhaps, <laughs> but Walker's one did remind me, I think we can give them a pass actually for this year because last year they nailed it so fully with the most glamorous Christmas ad ever, which had Mariah Carey in it with one of my absolute favorite songs. She was famously mocked for the way she ate her pig and blanket crisp at the end. My God, we need a recap of this. It's just so good. It's the last bag. I saw them first. Uh don't think you did. I think I did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Thank you so much. She nibbles it like she's been paid £9 million to do so, which, funnily <laughs> enough, she was. Um, so £9 imagine... million? Yeah, she was paid £9 million for that advert. Oh, but... my God. Amazon has the French ballet dancer, Taise Vinolo, whose dance school recital gets cancelled. Loved it. Made me cry. Oh my God, it made me cry. It makes me cry every time I've watched it. I've watched it quite a few times now. There are very few words in this one. Almost feels like a short film, which makes sense when you find out who the director is. It's Melissa Massassi, who is a two-time Grammy Award winner. And she directed, she directs music videos and she directed Formation for Beyonce. This one was my favourite. I thought it was gorgeously done and I thought the story was so nostalgic. I was like a real keen ballet dancer dork when I was a teenager. And when you think about those performances and how much you rehearse and how important those those events are to you when you're a teenager and how much they, they feel like sort of markers of your year and really uphold a sense of who you are and your purpose, all that stuff that's just so easy to forget when you become an adult and you've got loads of other stuff going on. You forget how, yeah, how important those, those moments are when you're a kid and how crushing it is when they don't go as planned or when they're postponed. Yeah, I just loved it, absolutely loved it. And also the way the whole kind of community, the whole neighborhood, comes together as well when it gets cancelled. There's just so much is conveyed in such a short advert. That's why I think it feels like a short film because there's there's family, there's community, there's art, there's a brief tiny hint of love. It's just a really, really beautiful, very short bit of filmmaking. And Tay's is, I think, breathtaking. In it. I'm guessing she's meant to be in probably her late teens or maybe she's um at college but I'm reluctant to say this is my favorite because we know that Amazon don't treat their workers well and don't pay their tax so please don't take this as, as an endorsement of their business model but I wept watching it as I said I weep every time I watch it um I could watch it a million times I also really like that the focus wasn't on Christmas I love celebrating Christmas personally and I love the build-up of Christmas actually more so than I love Christmas Day itself but not everyone celebrates Christmas and it's it's nice to see a Christmas ad that was more about the coming together and the ways in which that can happen during a pandemic because it's it's very much kind of set now isn't it yeah exactly I agree I think my favorite though Dolly my absolute favorite has to be TK Max's so with the goat wow. in a designer oh, outfit Loved it. I love this so much. Did you buy the goat a designer outfit? Yes. She's had such a hard year. She blooming well deserves it, if you ask me. She's had a hard year. Did you buy the goat? Did you buy the goat a designer outfit? She said, how'd you? Super duper coordination. Wow, how'd you put that together? Where'd you get that from? (laughs) I know, right? It's a gift. We're going to have to post that clip. That little goat is just the breakout star of Christmas 2020, I think. Well done to whoever created that advert. I mean, well done to whoever created almost every single one of these. Bar walkers, I think they were really really brilliant and um yeah the goat and the ballet dancer i could watch them preferably together just all day long (laughs) also as a side note just as we started recording today's episode some christmas telly news broke that i think might bring some of our listeners some cheer oh and me i don't know this there is going to be a vicar of dibley christmas special no how long has it been since the last god it must have been 10 years five years six years can't remember. Long time. But I couldn't be oh happier my about God. this news. The Vicar of Dibley, my hangover television of choice. God, it reminds me of my mum. We always used to watch it together. Oh, she loves the Vicar of Dibley. Do you remember the Darcy Bustle episode? Oh, love that episode. Classic. Well, that is excellent news, and I shall certainly be watching. Thank you. Support for the Hilo comes from Spotlight Oral Care. Spotlight Oral Care is created by dentists to improve your oral care. As we get older, many of us realise that it's so important for overall health to use specific products for oral care needs, and Spotlight Oral Care has got you covered. Hero products include the sonic toothbrush and teeth whitening strips loved by celebrities and famous smiles around the world. I am historically extremely nervous of whitening products after one disastrous attempt 10 years ago which left me with the world's most sensitive teeth even a cool breeze would make me weep so it was with a great amount of trepidation that I recently tried one of Spotlight oral care strips and hurrah no sensitivity from their clean ingredients and PETA approval to biodegradable packaging you can rest assured when you invest in a spotlight oral care essential it's doing good for the planet too help make smiles happen this christmas with spotlight oral care's range of gifting options on spotlightoralcare.com which are available to ship globally thank you very much to spotlight oral care I've got a documentary to recommend this week, a 2018 documentary on Vivian Westwood called Punk Icon Activist, which you can watch on cinemaparadiso.co.uk, Apple TV or Amazon. I don't know why, but at the moment I'm finding documentaries on dames who seem to not give a shit so edifying and exactly what I need. (laughs) The film looks at the history of Vivian Westwood, the brand, Vivian Westwood as a designer and Vivian Westwood as a woman. It reveals how she really did with the help of others invent punk, which is a phrase you hear over and over again. But when you think about what punk was, what it represented, what it did in terms of how it was in conversation with uh, political Britain at the time, It's kind of amazing that it was born from creative minds and uh, this movement to encapsulate this great feeling in this country. It's so fascinating to me. Equally as fascinating is her relationship with her business partner and husband, Andreas. He is much younger than her. They met when she was giving masterclasses on designing clothes, he is passionate about clothes. He came to work for her and then a relationship grew from that. He is a extraordinary character. He has an absolute devotion to her and her vision. They seem like an unlikely match, but they're clearly very, very, very in love. And they are now the joint beating heart of this, this fashion empire and the way that he talks about her is so respectful and so loving. There's one part of the documentary where he lists all the things that he adores about her. And he says, I love every millimeter of her body. I like, you know, he goes through all these things that he is in awe of. And I just, I always love hearing about heterosexual relationships where the woman in the partnership is the one with the most power, with the most influence, with the most money, with the biggest career. And hearing about the man in her life who supports that and celebrates that and is in reverence and in awe of that, because it's just not a dynamic that I think many women feel is possible. And it is possible. You can be in a heterosexual relationship with a man who isn't, Threatened by that kind of ambition or that kind of magnitude of self, that kind of force of self expression. And I personally find it very inspirational, is the wrong word because it shouldn't be inspirational because we see women supporting men like that all the time. But I find it very reassuring when I see relationships like that. The documentary also goes into a lot of the technicalities of her as a designer, of how she is a kind of old school couturist, how she cuts fabric on the model's body, how that makes a difference with the clothes that she makes and how the clothes fit women's bodies. And you know, she—you really do get the sense that she's a designer's designer, and yet she wasn't recognized. Her genius and her skill wasn't recognized for so long. There's a bit in the documentary that is really upsetting to watch, where she was invited onto a chat show, I think in the '80s, uh, to showcase her clothes. And she's speaking with great passion and very earnestly about her new collection. And the models walk on wearing these beautiful, beautiful clothes and the audience just fall about laughing. And she is so shocked by this. This is obviously hugely humiliating for her, but she's just so surprised. And she has this quite childlike reaction where she says, I've never seen anyone respond to my clothes like this. I think still to this day, there's so much sneering about fashion as an art form and its designers and its artists. And you can really see that sort of misunderstanding happen uh, in that clip. I've seen Vivian Westwood talk twice before. Once is when I was at one of her fashion shows and another time was when she was, I think either accepting or presenting an award at the British Fashion Awards. And she is so singularly herself, you know, she is famously a character. And both times she spoke for what I can only describe as an inappropriate length of time. And by that, I mean, you know, there's just like an accepted, um, there's sort of an accepted length of time, isn't there, when you're presenting something, or you're announcing something, or you're sort of coming out and saying, thanks for coming to my show. And there's, something quite radical about just pushing through that so that you can sort of sense she must be able to sense that you know people were becoming a bit bored maybe people were sort Mm. of whispering to each other like when she was doing the speech at the British Fashion Awards Jerry Hall who was next to her and being really divine but at one point had to kind of really sort of shepherd her off because Jerry was obviously aware that they were on a tight schedule and that Vivian had been speaking for a really long time. But I think it's quite difficult to resist that kind of conventional, tran- like social transactions mm. to be like, this is what totally. I'm gonna say. And this is the length of time I'm gonna speak. And even this is what I'm gonna talk about. Cause she went off on some major tangents. You know, she will start speaking about the environment which she's really passionate about, but yeah. which would have nothing to do with you know, why she was presenting an award or something. And yeah, I think she's just quite radical in that sense. And I don't, think there are many people that do that. No, and that's how she is throughout the doc. You know, she's punk. That's, that's how she conducts herself. It's totally unaffected. She's very no-nonsense. She's from Derbyshire. She's very Northern. And it's, really wonderful to watch that kind of attitude and ethic be juxtaposed with this high, high artistry of her of her skill set and her industry and her work. There's one bit of the doc that I loved so much, I sent a clip of it to Panda just because it made me laugh, when she was asked about the Sex Pistols by the documentary maker. we oh, really to the Sex Pistols and how they came about? No, no, I can't be bothered with them either. don't know what we're going to do. Really? The if I've got pieces. to talk about the sex pieces, I also wanted to play a, a clip from Kate Moss at the end being characteristically cheeky. I remember the shows, but I can't remember which one. We were backstage and she went... Kids, you know I've never been into girls. I could have got into you. And then, like, hugged me. She was like, I could have been her only lesbian lover. Ching I've always admired Vivian Westwood and her work but this documentary just catapulted me into full-blown infatuation with this woman I think there's something that's so British about her she's so eccentric as you say Poda but she's so tough um and so authentic and so heartfelt one of my favorite sections in the film is a few clips of her walking down the catwalk at the end of her infamous shows. And there's one of her, I think it's in the nineties, just cartwheeling down the catwalk. And it's just so fresh and natural. And it's such a delight to see a woman be true to herself in that way. So effortlessly, absolutely adored that documentary. What have you got to recommend me this week, Panda? I read Rupert Everett's third autobiography, To the End of the World. <gasps> I'm desperate to read this. Well, I think, I think we're probably allowed to say, aren't we, that we were meant to have him on the show today, but he's sadly filming. Um, and it would have been his first ever podcast. <laughs> gutted about that one. I know that would be amazing. I want to take I want to take Rupert Everett's podcast "Virginity Um, to the End of the World" is about his journey to both star in and direct a film about Oscar Wilde, who he has played many times before, Um, and the film is called "The Happy Prince," which came out in. 2018 i wish i'd read the previous two red carpet and other banana skins great name and the vanishing years another great name there before i'd read this because this is so good and i'm dying to get a sense of what came before them he's such a brilliant writer he's incredibly candid not only about other people but about his own shortcomings he's very funny quite often revolting a brilliant travel writer. He travels all over Europe trying to make his film. You know, it's sort of a disastrous and a disastrously long process. Some of the best bits are his evocative travel writing. I want him. I want a publisher to commission him to go on a long train journey, he loves a train, and to write about it. He's also fascinating on Hollywood and celebrity and what he sees as his own fading star. Here he is on celebrity. It's difficult to explain to a civilian why we are in the profession, whine about show business so much, and yet here we all are, hobbling along on our Zimmer frames years later, rushing for the bus to the next audition. Why are we so bitter? Julie Andrews once bleakly remarked in an interview that while you may love show business with all of your heart, dedicate your life and soul to it, show business will never love you back. It waits for the moment you're down and it kicks you carefully in the teeth. It is a dismal forecast and only goes halfway to describing the weird relationship we performers have with the strange profession that we will never willingly relinquish. Becoming a star is an audition and a mirage, a pretty picture at first but quickly stained by the thick hairspray of power and paranoia that slowly dulls our features, freezing them into our favourite fuck me grimace and calcifying the central plumbing system so that after a bit the hot water starts gushing from the cold water taps and general disorientation sets in. He is just such a good writer, isn't he? He has such a command of language and he describes things so well. His ear for dialogue is brilliant. He's the perfect memoirist. And I had absolutely no idea how good he was. Here's another hilarious bit where he just sends up his own humiliation with such honesty. I really admire him for sharing this and it's when he, God it made me laugh, it's when he thinks he's got a role in a film that has actually gone to Samuel L. Jackson. I was giddy with excitement. Tim seemed to love everything I said. That's so true, he screamed, pointing at Susie victoriously. Wait, screamed Susie back. I just felt reading the script that his character completely disappeared once they got to Blackpool, I continued smoothly. Exactly, gasped Tim. "'Stop!' shouted Susie, and we both looked around. "'You're not playing Mr. Barron!' she cried breathless. "'Your part is the ornithologist!' Silence. Freeze frame. They both looked at me smiling, eyes glittering. I couldn't even remember the ornithologist. "'Samuel L. Jackson is playing Mr. Barron,' said Tim apologetically after an appropriate pause. Thank God for being a hooray. I slammed into dinner party overdrive. Oh, well, of course, yes, silly old me. He's absolutely marvellous. Golly, I'm sure the ornithologist will be very exciting too. Oh, yes, agreed Tim. He's absolutely perfect. He does everything right. He's a typical English gentleman. The real thing, you mean? Exactly. Talentless toff. I was right. Great. Well, um, let me have a read again, because honestly, I can't really remember him that well. I artfully funneled a sob into a burp and beat a hasty retreat. Oh, the humility of him for sharing that <laughs> anecdote. Thank you, Rupert Everett. This book is an utter treat. It is mordantly camp and deliciously written. I just love the idea of funneling a sob into a burp. (laughs) I think if he finds making films as agonizing as he writes that he finds it, he should stick to writing because he is so, so good. But I do really want to watch The Happy Prince, which the book is really an homage to making and, of course, to read his first two autobiographies. That book sounds like it is everything that I hoped it would be. I mean, there are so many other amazing bits that I could have read out. I mean, here's just one more line for you before we go. We are in our primes, all drunk on just being there. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do a quick podcast podcast rattle off of the episodes that I've loved this week. I love it when you do these. Got my pen ready. Actually, I don't need my pen, I'll just look at the show notes. Candice Carty-Williams on Adam Buxton. Trump's last days in the White House and potentially the havoc he could inflict during that time on Fresh Air. Glenn Close on What The Fuck and Sir Keir Starmer on Desert Island Discs. That's a brilliant mixed bag. I'm not sure Oof, got to steal myself before listening to the Fresh Air one, but I am heading straight into Candice on Adam Buxton, two people I love listening to. Thanks for those, doll. Have you got any journalism to recommend this week, Panda? I also wanted to recommend a piece by Camille Charrier for Harper's Bazaar on seven years of loving people who do not love you back. I thought it might really resonate with a lot of our listeners. It certainly resonated with me in quite a painful way. It's such an honest piece, it's painfully funny at times. And as I said, I recognized a lot of myself in it. When I was single, I projected relationships onto people that under no circumstances wanted to run with me. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's done this. I think women do it more than men because women have been sold a fairy tale that we sort of have to hang on in there and and hope a man notices us. Cammie is so honest about the willful delusion she indulged in with various objects of her affection. The fact that William didn't want to date me and told me explicitly did not deter me in the slightest, she writes. I knew we were meant to be, so I could not let this tiny detail, his feelings, get in the way of our future happiness. She really challenges the myth that you have to know yourself before others can know you, which puts this, I think, extra pressure to kind of come to a relationship fully formed. I should probably extol the idea that healthy relationships only come once you have developed a loving relationship with yourself. We all know that to be true, but this wisdom implies that you're able or have the inclination to do the work. Please, who has the time to become the best version of themselves these days? Yes, I agree with that. And I also think it is a fallacy to believe that we get to a final draft <laughs> of who we are, a final draft of selfhood yes. and then that is the perfect version to hand over to a partner. You just can't live your life like that. You you learn and grow on your own and you learn and grow alongside someone. It's all a part of that of the trajectory of getting older. I mean, I think my husband needs his money back if he was meant to have got a final draft <laughs> of me at 24. I I, def- I mean, I don't think he's got a final draft now. Don't think will ever get a final draft. So, yeah, I loved that bit as well. I know a lot of people really worry that COVID is sort of deoptimizing them to the extent that they will have no vim or vigor left after this year. And that's not just single people, that's people coupled up too, who feel their energy kind of draining away. But for those that are single and wanting to meet someone, that can feel doubly daunting to feel like you have to locate your best self in order to lasso this new partner. And I think what Cammy has written there is really reassuring. She also says something that really chimed with me, that she's wary of moving into the role of kind of armchair expert on relationships, just because she's now settled. I don't want to pretend that the fact I'm engaged suddenly makes me competent to dish out relationship advice. My own love addict days may be over, but I'm only just coming to terms with just how toxic my behavior was throughout my 20s. There's definitely something about meeting Mr. Right that brings all your past mistakes into sharp focus. Hindsight, as they say, is 2020 vision. All your indiscretions neatly lined up like ducks in a row to be examined should you care to laugh at yourself. It turns out all the Mr. Rights I once pursued were not the issue. It wasn't them. The real problem lay within myself. Perhaps this is why I find conversations with my unattached friends so confronting. How do I tell them that if it's this hard, it's probably not right? So I found that a great read and I will share that in the show notes. I really enjoyed that piece. And I think it's always helpful to hear from people who were single for a very, very long time and for whom singleness really defined them and for whom a relationship felt like it would be the healing salve it's always really interesting to hear from those people once they find a relationship and to reflect on their time as a single person and to be honest about whether a relationship met their expectations and whether it solved everything which as we know it never does so i really appreciate these kind of these kinds of personal essays and lastly i wanted to recommend a breathtakingly brilliant essay by Catherine Bromwich on long COVID, which we are reading more and more about, and which is a really scary prospect that I think we shouldn't keep ourselves in the dark about. It's a piece about how long COVID forced her to confront her past and how the aftermath of COVID led to a reorientation of her entire identity and a navigation of past trauma. It's such a beautifully crafted, piece it covers so many themes with such personal lyricism trauma illness identity her upbringing in italy what makes a real woman but she also firmly contextualizes it in the present and in tropes that are very real social and political things right now so it does that very clever thing of being a personal essay which is also incredibly poignant and provocative about where society and where culture is right now. I could have read 10,000 words more. I will link that piece in the show notes too. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com where all proceeds go to charity. For November, the charity is fair share. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.